Alright, welcome to Faithful Dialogues. My name is Ryan, and I'm here with my friend Austin. Hi everybody, I'm Austin, uh, co-founder of Apostles Attic. You can check me out at ApostlesAttic.com. And you can find my personal stuff over at As It Is Written. Um, yeah, yeah uh, you'll find that linked in our descriptions. So... Uh, I hope that you've been having a good day, Austin. Uh, I know that we had a little bit of a mix-up and loss of a recording. Uh, so if there was anybody that watched our earlier Twitch stream, I believe that was live, uh, but there is no recording oh, of it, cool. unfortunately. <laughs> so yep, there may be... Happened. We're ironing out the kinks as yep. we go along. But uh, we're getting it figured out, and we're going from there, and uh, just kind of uh, making sure we put at least something out every week, right? That's the goal. So, we'll just jump right on into it. Do you have some questions for me this week, Austin? I do, I do. Are you ready to get started? Yes, I am. All right, let's start with, um, can you talk to us about, in general, the creation story? Um, I know that God created the day, or, or God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. But say I've never heard anything about that, I'd like to just kind of briefly go through Scripture and see what the the Bible or God's Word has to say about um, how everything, the universe began. And then um, I'd like us to stop when um, Adam and Eve, the, the creation story of them as well. Okay. Yeah, so let me get the... Uh... Bible story pulled up and on our screen here. Uh, so we're going to Genesis chapter 1. Um, and let me get that up on screen. There we go. First uh, page. <laughs> yeah. It's always fun going to Genesis 1. And uh, it says here, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, oh, by the way, Austin, I can kind of hear myself over your uh, your oh. your speakers a little bit. Um, so, uh, we what we see here is that God created everything. Uh, we can see that uh, He created the earth, uh, the heavens, and the earth are basically at the same time, though the heavens did come. A little bit before the earth and uh, we see that the earth was without form I don't know exactly what that means and it was void uh, not exactly sure what that means either but those are interesting words without form and void kind of means nothing um, and we saw that we see that darkness was on the face of the deep so there wasn't light at this point and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters so God was somehow uh, close to his creation. So that's an interesting way to start it off. We see some very definite things about God here that A, he exists, B, he acted and did something to create our universe, and uh, what we'll see is what he then does to shape that to fit his creative will. Um, 
So then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So uh, what we see here is an interesting way of going about this. What, we'll, what you would notice uh, if you looked at Israelite and uh, Hebrew tradition is that they believe the day starts um, in the evening and ends in the evening. And so because of the way that this was written, it says evening and the morning were the first day. So where in the West here, we believe that the day starts with the rising of the sun in the morning, the Jews would say that the day started the night before. So kind of a different way of looking at uh, how you uh, account for time. So uh, that's an interesting difference between uh, what the Jews do and what we do in our somewhat uh, pagan-inspired culture. Um, and then so you wanted to go and look at uh, kind of each day a little bit. I can't hear you, Austin. You're you're muted. Um, so yeah, let's just go through the the scripture and um, see what he does on each of those days, and then um, we'll also just see how he created man and how he created woman. Okay. So then the next day, um, what we see is, uh, then God said, uh, "Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters." So he made some kind of a division where now some things are not other things. Um, so that's an important step in the creation of the universe. Uh, Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. So now God's starting to order the universe a little bit more. There are things that are not other things. There's different areas now that he's created. Um, and what we'll see in verse 9 is, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so a little bit different thing here today. Now what God's creation is, is it was good. So this is the first day that we see God call uh everything good i believe right yeah so far yeah um everything looks like the space that we're created now has light and uh, the waters have separated and he's seems like he's putting his approval on it so far um, for the first time yep and so that's an important thing when you're studying scripture uh this is there there is a uh literary uh, I don't know if device is the right term, but a, a literary rule that you should take note of any time that something is mentioned for the first time, okay? And so I believe this is the first time that goodness is mentioned in the Bible at all. Uh, and so that's an interesting thing to take note of. Um, so all other f times that there is goodness that shows up is derivative of this to some extent is kind of the thinking. Um, so, something to take note of. Uh, 
Then the next day, uh, God brings forth grass uh, and fruit trees. Um, so that's verses 11 through 13. Uh, so the, and he saw that it was good there. And then the evening and the morning were the third day. So that was the third day there. Uh, then the next day, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Uh, so basically he created uh, the day and night cycle here on the fourth day. Um, but there already was, to some extent, a day and night cycle as there was an evening and a morning before that somehow. So clearly we're not think. you know, clearly there were days before there was a day and a night, which is an interesting uh, thing to look at here. So another, something you should think about and ponder, right? Uh, this isn't anything that should, should test your faith, in my opinion, because um, it's not a contradiction. Uh, it's just we have to think about it from a, a different perspective than what we might usually kind of think of, right? Because clearly in the verses before, it was talking about an evening and a morning specifically, not, not even like, like very specific to times of day. Those, those terms are very specific to a time of day, right? So, um, and then, uh, on the fifth day, God, uh, put all the living creatures in the water. So all the aquatic creatures, let all the birds fly above the earth. Um, so birds and flying creatures got created on the fifth day. Uh, and then on the sixth day, God said, let the Earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see here that uh, God made Adam and Eve uh, directly, right? They were a creation from God. Uh, so they, in this, it would be very hard to say that there was some kind of an evolutionary process. Uh, it seems pretty plain and simple that God just made man and woman in his likeness. Uh, but we'll see more of that in the next chapter. So we'll move over. This is kind of the uh, first creation story, and then there is a second creation story of man that gets a little bit more specific in the following chapter. Um, and so we see here, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse uh, 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. All right, any more, any specific questions you wanted to ask about this uh, paragraph, or this chunk right here? No, no, that looks, that's pretty good. Um. All right. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, so, so sorry. okay, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. You're good. What did you want to, what did you want to say? Did you want to move on? I was going to move on. Yeah. But if you okay. had anything to say, um, definitely go for it. Um, just that what we see here, uh, is very much a, uh, story about God directly creating, uh, Adam and Eve. Okay. Uh, God literally went into and pulled a rib out of Adam and created woman from that rib. That's not an evolutionary process. You couldn't, there isn't a, I, okay. So a lot of people say that we should take the Bible literally, uh, and in certain places you're not supposed to take the, the Bible literally, but I do believe we are supposed to take the Bible seriously. And if we're seriously reading this section right here, it would be very, very hard for us to find, uh, evolution in that, in this, uh, uh, part of the Bible at all. Okay. I'm not aware of any part of the Bible that would be evidence that it's talking about evolution. I can find all sorts of evidence that the Bible talks of other physical laws and na and properties of nature. Um, one of them being entropy, uh, which is working against evolution and why evolution can't work, but that's a different story. So just for people that, that want to believe in a an allegorical six-day creation story where it's just an allegory but God really used evolution... It's very hard for me to to say that that's uh, for me to believe that because it's just it's not what was written and I I take what was written very seriously and very highly. I believe what was written in the Bible over what some guy in a lab coat tells me, uh, because the guy in the lab coat will be wrong in twenty five years no matter what, even even if, um, you know his opinion doesn't change at all science will have changed enough that he will have been wrong about a, a huge portion of things whereas scripture has been right for two you know for the entirety of the time that it's existed and uh, we'll be able to stand the test of time and uh will hold true all the way till the end of the earth um but uh yeah so for me i i just think that this very clearly outlines a process where god created directly everything in the universe. And so I, that's that's the number one thing I'd want people to get out of this. I know it sounds silly and makes us it would and it makes Christians sound not credible uh when we say that we believe in a young earth, 
Um, I'm not saying that we know exactly the date when when the world was created. There's some room for uh, the genealogies to not be entirely complete that were used uh, in the coming chapters uh, up until Noah. And so you eliminate one person from the genealogy, and that's a thousand years that gets taken out of the timeline of why events. What, what, why is what? Why is it a thousand years if you remove one person? Well, that's just because how long people were living right there. Well, yeah, that's how that's how old Adam was. Uh, Methuselah got to like nine hundred and sixty nine years or something like that. Wow. So uh, that's yeah, that's rich. You know what I mean? You you remove one of those people, and that's throwing off your your genealogical dating by up to you know a thousand years almost. So the genealogies don't have to be a hundred percent complete and perfect. Uh, in order for me to believe in the Bible, they're what God and the Holy through the Holy Spirit put there. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's just one thing where a lot of people have kind of capitulated and said, "Yeah, well, evolution's probably true because my science teacher told me." Uh, I'm not one of those people that that agrees with that. If there's really good, strong evidence for evolution, I would believe it. But if you actually look into it, that just it doesn't exist. So. That's all I that's all I really wanted to say. Oh, and uh one of the cool things um we can actually trace something that's very important to modern science back to a portion of scripture here in this passage. And so in the Bible when uh it talks about God taking the rib out of Adam, it says that he was put to sleep first. And the reason why that's so important is it actually gave the guy the idea for anesthesia when uh uh when he read that passage so he was reading that passage in his bible came across the fact that and realized the fact that uh adam didn't feel any pain in that process or didn't seemingly fe feel any pain in that process yeah adam the um yeah. and so being asleep might be a good way to do surgery and so then he started researching how to knock out people and that's where we got uh ultimately you know modern anesthesia from so there's a lot of scientific discoveries that actually came about because people were faithfully and seriously reading scripture uh so i'll point those out as we come across them in our discussions going forward cool. um so and i also have a series about that of videos over at as it is written uh called scientifically accurate bible uh statements i believe Something like that. Or claims. Scientifically accurate Bible claims. <laughs> if you want to go search that out, I'll uh, throw a link down in the description. Um, so what's, what's the next question? All right. So there is a topic that I want to go over um, for you, Ryan. It's sell your cloak. And the whole point of this question is if you're, if you're reading, if you're a new Christian, if you're new to the faith, um, and you're reading your Bible, and you get to the part where Jesus is saying, if someone strikes you on your left cheek, offer them your right cheek. Um, in, in general, it kind of sounds like if someone is assaulting me, that I'm just supposed to let it happen. Um, I, so I, as a Christian, um, am I okay to defend myself? Um, uh can i like there's a lot of uh christian 
police officers are they okay with to have guns are we okay to like it just in general like so just touch on that for us yeah so uh just to start off there there's no such thing as a uh a non-sinful pacifist in the bible to my knowledge um every time that there is a reason why you should go to fight and, and go to war uh that's totally acceptable and godly right there's uh even even look at jericho okay that was a a bloody horrible mess even though the israelites didn't have to actually go to war themselves god did it to the to the people of jericho and so um you going out and going to to fight when god calls you to is completely justified um and so what we have to do is look at when is that justified so for the jews it was justified when uh, God told them to go inhabit the land. So they were called to go and actually clear out the land of people that Satan had placed there over the course of 400 years. Um, and so uh, they were called to go and do a specific task. They didn't actually end up doing that task the way God commanded them to, and it caused them uh, numerous problems throughout the Old Testament. Okay? And so they were... Now, could the Jews today use the Old Testament as a mandate to go and start causing genocides? No, because they were told to go do those things at a specific time, and those were, were commands given to specific people. So at the moment, wow. I, I don't think there is any call whatsoever to anybody on earth to go and fight or go to war uh, uh, as, an as an aggressor, as a Christian. Okay? Um, so I could see people uh, trying to be pacifists in the sense that they don't want to go to war. Like, let's say if I was a Russian right now, would I be uh, okay with going to war in Ukraine? Probably not. I would probably try to use some kind of a pacifist argument if the government came knocking at my door and asking me to go fight my Ukrainian brothers. Um Okay, because I don't think as a Christian it would be it was acceptable for Putin to go into an aggressive war against the Ukrainians, right? They weren't really. Uh, f Does that make sense? Now, yeah. If uh, now if I'm a Ukrainian, it is my duty as a man to go and defend my country and die for my country. Okay, because there is an invading army coming in that and trying to take over my land and, and I have to assume uh, murder me and, and rape my my women and, and enslave my children, right? Like, that's what I have to assume is... When you're being assaulted or attacked, it's sinful to not defend yourself at that point. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, if you don't go and fight when you are required to go fight, you're committing an even worse sin, in my opinion, because you're you're allowing those innocent people that you've been called to defend to be uh to be assaulted and hurt and injured uh, unju uh you know when it's your job to protect them and so yeah you were their line of defense there mhm mm and so that that's my opinion that there that we shouldn't be going out and seeking violence and we should do everything in our power to avoid a situation where we need to use any kind of violence or even to really show any kind of force. I wouldn't say that you should even go and, and like show off a gun with the intent of, you know, scaring somebody. Does that make sense? Brandishing um, a weapon. 
yeah <laughs> like that's a really dumb idea for a whole host of reasons but there there could be an instance where it might make sense to do that i don't think a christian should do that because we shouldn't be aggressive in that way and that kind of escalates situations too and can and they can then use that as a justification to act aggressively towards you right or they assault you yeah <laughs> and so as a Christian, we shouldn't give them any grounds to justifiably try to hurt us or attack us. And so when they do, and when we defend ourselves, we're in the right. And, uh, you know, it's much less about defending, like, myself as, as a man, um, and more of, you know, I would absolutely have to defend my family, my friends, my city, my country. There's a whole host of things that I'm responsible to go and defend uh, above and beyond just myself. Uh, and the other reason why it's also a good idea for you to defend yourself is, you know, who's to say if you just let that other guy go or don't do anything to defend yourself and let him hurt or kill you, he's who's to say he doesn't just go on and do that to somebody else? And so by defending yourself, you're also defending putting the future. You're putting an end to it and you're defending any future potential victims, right? So... Even even defending yourself is a net benefit to your community because you're stopping somebody else that is likely going to go victimize other people. And so, you know, there it, it, you are completely justified to defend yourself as a Christian. What I don't think you're justified to do is go and start some kind of a, a war or, you know, go and act fight. aggressively, a fight, none of that kind of stuff. And And you should be actively doing everything in your power to de-escalate situations and and you know spread the love of christ with the people that uh, currently hate you because there's so many times in history where that's what's actually led to people turning around and turning to christ when they see the love uh that gets shown to them despite the fact that they're you know supposedly mortal enemies with you right yeah so <laughs> and and you know christians that that's how christianity is spread from the beginning uh, if you look back at uh, the early church uh, in Rome, you know they were getting um, they were getting burned at the stake in Nero's garden uh, to light up the garden as candles, and they would be preaching to the guards that are burning them. And there were guards that were were coming to Christ because of the the witness of these people that are getting burned at the stake. And so there there are times when you know being persecuted can be a benefit and uh you know it, it's it's a way that christianity can spread um but uh you, there's also times when you're required to defend yourself so you know it, it's it's not a hundred percent clean cut but yeah so any any follow-up questions no, that's perfect um let's go ahead and move right on um so in the realm of Christianese, um, there's a lot of words that get thrown around that new believers might not know or be sure of. Um, let, let, let's tackle a big one, and it is eschatology. What is eschatology? That is a real big word, and actually one that I didn't even know really existed until a couple years back. <laughs> Um, and eschatology, is, very simply put, is the study of end times. So in the Bible, um, there are prophetic books that speak to all different portions or events throughout history. Um, but there's a number of them that specifically talk about 
what is going to happen once Jesus Christ returns, uh, which every a lot of people call the second coming. So you'll see little bits of prophecy about that in Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Um, there's a couple books in the New Testament, including Jude and Revelation. Um, talk about the second coming. Yeah, uh, or at oh, the very wow. at, at the very least, what's going to be happening in the end times. Uh, okay. So there's a, a few different events that will happen, um, and I have very specific beliefs on uh, when those events will happen and in kind of what order they're going to happen. So um, the end time event that that is the pivotal event that everybody's kind of arguing about is called the tribulation. And so that is the time when uh, a man called the Antichrist is going to rise up. He's going to do some things. Um, ultimately, he's going to go into a rebuilt Jewish temple, desecrate that temple um, for everyone to see around the world uh, somehow. So in my opinion, the Bible, when it's prophesying that, is talking about uh, somebody having a cell phone and, and live streaming the Antichrist in the Jewish temple desecrating it, right? Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in this tribulation period. And so the, the discussion, ultimately it's going to be very bad for Christians. Uh, not for Christians, it's going to be very bad for... Um, <laughs> sorry. Jewish people? For the world. Sorry, I, I'm trying to uh, keep everything straight. So... It's going to be a very bad time for the entire world. There's going to be plagues and just horrible things happening all over the place. And so there are... That's uh, just what's been prophesied. So oh, okay. if you go and read the book of Revelation, you go read Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, you'll see pictures of what this time period is going to look like. Um, there's going to be a time period where it's good, and then halfway through that time period, it's going to get bad. And so we believe it's going to be seven years of uh, three and a half years of good and three and a half years of bad. And my belief is that at the beginning of that first good three and a half year period, uh, the church will be taken out of the planet Earth. They'll be snatched up and taken out of the bad things that are about to happen. Okay, so that's called pre-tribulation. Um, rapture, and so that's uh, so that you'll hear people uh, uh, shorten that to pre-trib. Uh, so that's what my belief. The, what does the word tribulation mean? Tribulation is just a fancy word for bad stuff happening. So trials and so, tribulations, yeah. And you're saying the rapture also. What is rapture? Um, so uh, rapture means to be snatched up, uh, and so the Greek word. That was that was originally used is called harpazo, uh, and so that is a word that is found in the Bible because there's a lot of people that will tell you that rapture isn't found in the Bible, um, and they're right. Technically, that word rapture isn't found in the Bible because it's a Latin term, um, but that Latin term was translated from the Greek word harpazo, which means to snatch or to like snatch up. So it has the connotation of like something from above coming down and picking it up. Uh, and so... Kind of the same connotation that rapture has to... Yes. So in Latin, rapture has that same exact connotation. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, 
I'm not 100% sure about this part, but I believe wrapped, the wrapped R-A-P-T, uh, it comes from the same uh, uh, prefix for raptor. So, like, you, you know what a... a the birds of the birds of prey called raptors, so like eagles and vul- and vultures or not vultures, um, hawks, I believe, are are raptors. They have the the, the claws. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, you didn't know that. Sorry. So, uh, that that root, I believe, is the same. So what that what and what does a, a raptor do? They swoop down and they grab a bunny or a mouse and they rapture it away. Oh, okay. Pluck from above kind yeah. of is what I'm kind of So wrapped right. so wrapped sure is oh you just got you you just got plucked up by a hawk is kind of what they're saying. Uh, I believe that 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 I'm not 100% on. So that might that might be wrong. <laughs> um so uh yeah. Uh, did that? Oh, so my belief is that before this period of tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to, he's not going to completely come back and set foot in Jerusalem, but he's going to come back in the sky and he's going to gather all of the Christians, so the whole church, uh, up into the air with him and he's going to take us to be in heaven and we're going to be watching from the mezzanine all of the horrible things that are going to be happening on the earth for that uh seven year period um and then after that seven year period is over we're going to come back with jesus christ as his army uh and uh rid the world of evil for a thousand years nice Uh, we're not really sorry we're we're not really doing anything to rid the world of evil it's really going to be a hundred percent jesus like we're just there to yeah we're just there to cheer him on (laughs) <laughs> nice we're just julius right i'm down yep <laughs> uh but you know that's that's the side of the battle you want to be on and and i hope and i pray that anybody listening is not on the other side of that because they're going to want the mountains to have fallen on to fall on them <laughs> rather than okay, face so, the wrath of jesus all right so i hear what you're saying and i want to get on god's side how do i do that uh you can get on god's side by believing uh by professing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life and believing in your heart that he rose from the dead to save you from the consequences of your sins. Uh, So you need to believe in Jesus Christ and you need to uh, believe in the work that he did for you, the completed work that you can't add to, and uh, just have faith in him. Uh, So, yeah. I... I, the first episode that you've turned tuned into um the, uh so god created everything and including the earth and um the humans on it and when he wanted to come down and step down from his place in heaven so to speak um and step into his creation that he made and uh, mingle with us personally physically he did that as jesus christ so he's referred to as the son in the trinity but he is a representation of the physical representation of the father so it's um it, yeah I'll, I'll just i'll just kind of put it that way so when when we're saying to have faith in jesus we're saying have faith in god right because he jesus is the person that 
God sends to redeem us. And so he wants us to have faith in the person that he sent to redeem us, which is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy, right? Like, that's the whole connection mm-hmm. right there. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the Old Testament basically kind of just talks about how um, man sinned and rebelled and messed everything up and God had to fix it. And it says he's going to send somebody to redeem his creation, but that doesn't happen in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament starts off with the four Gospels, which means the good news. What is it in, uh, what link, like, can you tell me about the, really quick, the Gospels, why it means good news? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Let me, uh, let me look that up for you and I'll, uh, I'll get back to you in just a sec. So. Okay. You got, yeah, so the. The New Testament kicks off with the four Gospels, which is essentially the good news that Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sins. It, should you have faith in him that he is God, that he died for your sins, and that he rose three days later, um, showing that his sacrifice was accepted um, by God. Um, so, yeah. Um, Old Testament, we messed everything up. God needs to send somebody to redeem. New Testament... The, the person God was sending is finally here. Messiah is here. And so what does Messiah mean and what does Christ mean? Uh, so the same thing. <laughs> uh, Mashiach. Yeah, uh, Mashiach uh, is a title uh, and it is uh, close to meaning like savior. Uh, it's basically this figure in, uh, in Judaism that, it, that they believe is going to, that we believe has already come back to uh save them uh they think from earthly rulers he's going to put off all the earthly rulers that have subjugated the jews and uh rule from jerusalem so they think that jesus is going to come back and do the uh the eschatology stuff but they think he skipped having to come back and do the jesus dying on the cross stuff does that make sense yeah Okay. Um, so, did you want the etymology of the word gospel? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be it, cool. It makes literally zero sense. Uh, so, it starts... So, it ends up at gospel. Uh, it goes back to uh, Old English God spell. Uh, and so, I think God is kind of like obviously god and then spell they meant like a news story okay so at that point in old english god story spell mean spell means news like specifically a news story like something that's just happening or, or like does that make sense and so oh, okay. god's god spell was the good the the news story of god basically um but before that the uh, the that's the old english uh, and then somehow it went from the Latin evangelium, okay, uh, and then went jumped from evangelium to Godspell. <laughs> That's weird because uh, that sounds really close to evangelical. Yes, that is where evangelical comes from. Uh, it's uh, and in Greek it's euangelion, e u a n g e l i o n. So that's uh, a little bit about that. 
a little bit of uh, etymology there for you. I'm a nerd about that kind of stuff. Oh, here's the webpage, so you can kind of see. Um, sorry, everyone else but Austin, unfortunately. We'll uh, we'll figure that out. But uh, see how it's got gospel over here, and then Godspell, Evangelion, uh, Evangelium, and then Evangelion. All right. Uh, so where are we at? Uh, what do we got next? All right, what we have next is okay. So I've heard that there are tribes, um, essentially of the Jewish people. There are tribes. I know that Saul or Paul of Tarsus comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, I know that. Aaron has something to do with the tribe of Levi. I know that the tribe of Levi are the priests. So can you explain this kind of tied into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but can you can you kind of touch on the, the 12 tribes? Yeah, so I just pulled up another graphic for us over here. Uh, so um, there's two people that are, uh, let me see, I thought it had them. Oh, no, I guess not. Um, so there are 12 tribes, sort of, <laughs> of, uh, of Israel. Um, and so these are all the descendants of Abraham, who are also descendants of Isaac, who are also descendants of Jacob. Okay? So there are people who are descendants of Abraham who are not descendants of Isaac and I don't of Jacob. How that works. Is that like by marriage or something? No, uh, multiple children. So Abraham had uh, Isaac, his son, but before that he had um, uh, Ishmael, his son with Hagar, the handmaid oh, of true. Sarah. Right. And then after he had uh, Isaac, um, he had another son who I cannot remember his name. Uh, so he had children after Isaac, after Sarah died, actually. So he got remarried and had more children after Sarah that's passed sad. away. No, no, that's, that's Adam and Eve. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the name. I'm not going to try to. I was pretty proud of myself for remembering what I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's Abraham. Uh, and then Isaac also had two children, or at least two sons. Uh, Jacob and Esau. And so there are also descendants of Esau that are also descendants of Abraham, but are not descendants of Jacob. Okay? okay. Does, that make, does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah. Um, uh, I believe those are the only two sons of, uh, uh, of uh, Isaac, are Jacob and Esau. So Jacob actually is the younger of the two, and he ends up with the birthright in a whole cool story that we can go over at some other point and that you should look into yourself if you're so inclined. Um, but Jacob the Younger actually ends up with the birthright, so he is the one that the blessings pass on through. And so Jacob ends up having two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel, and another very interesting story we'll have to go over sometime. Uh, but Leah was a wife he did not want, but he ended up having to marry first. Rachel was the wife that he did want and ended up ultimately marrying her second. So, 
the most uh, praiseworthy and uh, the, the best thing that a woman could do at this time period was have male heirs. And so uh, at this point, Rachel uh, was not having any male heirs, and neither was Leah. And so they decided that they could both allow their handmaids to go and have children with Jacob. Okay? And so <laughs> what we see is that you end up with uh, 12 children here on uh, our, um, uh, our, geneal our, our genealogical tree here from four different women. So we have Leah, the wife he didn't want, Zilpah, her handmaid, we have Rachel, the wife that he did want and he did love, and Bilhah, her handmaid, okay? And so that all plays into kind of the hierarchy uh, somewhat, at least in some people's eyes, of the different tribes. Um, so there's tribes from different handmaids that may feel that they're uh, lesser than some other ones, or you know, other tribes might use that against them, all sorts of stuff throughout history, and different animosities like that. But the tribes uh, that... <clears throat> That exist are called Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there are two tribes that are left off of this list. Uh, they are actually sons of Joseph. And so there's a whole cool story of Joseph that I also recommend you go check out. It's actually one of my favorite Bible stories at the moment. Um, and I, uh, and so Joseph has two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, so what ends up happening is once Joseph and his father, Jacob are reunited, uh, in Egypt, um, Joseph, uh, actually, uh, sorry, Jacob actually blesses and adopts Joseph's children as his own. And so they, in certain instances, get counted as their own tribes. All right. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yes. So that's the complicated story of the 12, really 14 tribes of Israel. <laughs> um, and, but, the, but it's still only 12 because those two tribes are really kind of like sub-tribes. So, wait, one, okay. two. Yeah, yes. Okay. So, uh, there are certain times when uh, there are lists of these tribes that show up in the Bible. They will always show up with 12 tribes. They will not always show up with the same 12 tribes. So, if the uh, nation of Israel is going out to war, the Levites are not allowed to go with them. And so, the Levites would not be a tribe counted among those going out to war. Uh, but they would still need to get to 12 tribes, and so you might slot in, you would say, they would list Joseph, but then they would also might list his son Ephraim, or his son Manasseh, uh, depending. And so that's how they can always get to 12 total tribes, no matter what, on every list. Uh, if that makes any amount of sense. It's kind of silly, but something that you can look for as you read your Bible. Um... But yeah, so that's kind of the long explanation of all of the different tribes and kind of a little bit of a backstory on... Oh, here, here I'm going to point out some of the um, important ones to you. 
So you'll hear the tribe Levi quite frequently, and uh, it's not because of their genes. It's because uh, they are uh, the priests. So uh, in the Exodus, when uh, we see the nation of Israel leaving Egypt and going into the promised land, uh, the entire nation rebels against God at a certain point, except for the tribe of Levi. And so at that point, when God is portioning out different areas of land for uh, the tribes of Israel, instead of getting a plot of land, the tribe of Levi gets to be uh, the Lord gets to inherit the Lord. And so they they get to uh, they get the most uh, special inheritance, an actual relationship where certain members of their tribe actually get to go and directly commune and meet with God in uh, so in certain ways. So that's a huge blessing for their tribe. Um, and so when you look at the allotments of different areas, the Levites get a few cities. And so they get to be in charge of a few of the cities. Uh, they were called sanctuary cities. Uh, and what that means is that if you got, uh, if you committed manslaughter, so you accidentally killed someone, uh, that person's next of kin uh, becomes the, uh, I can't remember the term, but basically he gets to come and hunt you down and kill you. And uh, what you have to do as a person on the run is you have to make it to a city of refuge before this next of kin comes and kills you in revenge for uh, killing his next of kin. What? Okay. That's awesome. Um, and so <laughs> you had to then kick it in this city of refuge until the high priest dies. And so you then when the high priest dies, you are free to leave the city uh, and any... any uh, if the guy that has the uh, next of kin who's sworn to kill you, he can no longer kill you legally. <laughs> it's so a strange. Yeah. Um, we'll have to discuss this more some other time, but that actually has some, uh, it's kind of like foreshadowing uh, our high priest. So we have a oh. high priest who can't die. And so we eternally have a city of refuge. He's also called our refuge. So, there's some interesting parallels there. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's Levi. That's the tribe of Levi. The next important tribe on this list is Judah. So Judah was not the oldest of the, uh, the, the, the brothers here. Um, but because of uh, Reuben, who is the oldest, he messed up. And I think, I may be wrong about what his sin was, but I believe that he ended up sleeping with his father's concubine. I, I could be wrong about that. Something horrible. Reuben did something horrible, and uh, he ends up losing the birthright or the right to be the like uh, kingly line, and that ends up going to Judah. And so we see that some notable characters that come from the tribe of Judah would be uh, King David... King Solomon, and ultimately King of the Universe, King Jesus, comes out of the tribe of Judah. Um, and then uh, of the other ones, Dan. Uh, Dan is seen as, uh, comes up negatively in some certain instances, uh, so they don't show up on some lists. 
and uh, that might have some implications that I get into at a later date. Um, uh, yeah, and so then Joseph, like I said, has the two sub-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, they were both of his sons that got adopted by Jacob, which you can see recorded in chapters somewhere between 48 and 50 of Genesis. So... Whew, I know, that was probably a little bit longer than it should have been, but uh, I hope that was enough detail oh, for you. That's perfect. Um, I, don't know, I think we have time for me a more. Yeah, we're at, about, uh, we're at about 52 minutes, so about an hour. All right, let's... Go ahead. <clears throat> how um how does the Christian faith like discuss or approach the topic of money? What is it what does the God's word say about money? Um and just possessions in general, like stuff. Um I know there's <laughs> there's a story of the rich young ruler that you could touch on. Um and just two masters, and there's a couple different things, but um, and then did you want me to repeat the question before? No, I I got it. So, uh, you know, the Bible says, "For the love of money is the root of all evil." Um, it it tells the rich young ruler that he needs to give up his money, uh, in order to be able to truly follow Jesus. Um, in that one, so in that story, it it. A lot of people apply that broadly to everyone, um, but if you look at the details of the story of the rich young ruler, which you can look up the reference to, I can't remember where in the Bible it's found, but uh, specifically, it's talking about that one specific person. So he's claiming that he's done and lived his life perfectly uh, and not having broken any of the commandments, um, and so Jesus identifies the one barrier that he does have to truly living a, a godly life is his love of his money. Um, and so he couldn't give that up to go be like Jesus Christ was calling him to basically come be almost like a disciple. And he says, no. Right. So if you had that, if you were, uh, you know, if, if that happened to me, I would hope that I would give up all of my possessions to go follow Jesus Christ because he's Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that you need to give up all of your possessions as a Christian to go you know, because you're not actually physically following Christ like that. Does that make sense? That's why he was saying that. He was like, um, sell all your stuff and come follow me. And he couldn't do it, right? He That was oh. too much of a barrier for him to go actually follow Christ. And so Jesus was identifying in this person that his love of money was an issue, right? And that kept him out of the kingdom of God. So your love of money can keep you from following Christ, but just having a lot of money doesn't necessarily keep you from being able to follow Christ. Because you could have all the money in the world and still follow Christ the way that he wants you to, to follow him. Okay? As long as that money isn't an idol that you put above God or an idol at all in your life. Because you can't serve two masters. So, if you're properly ordered and oriented and you're, you're looking at God and looking at Christ and living for him, 
he might give you a bunch of money to go and do good work with. He might bless you in that way. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, but he might. And it's your job as a Christian to steward that money properly and, and utilize the opportunities that that brings you. Um, and so you look at some of the richest people in, in history are Job. Job had an incredible wealth for, for the time frame uh, that he lived in. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. King David was very wealthy. King Solomon was very Solomon. wealthy. Yeah. Um, so wealth in and of itself is not a barrier to you being saved or not being saved. What it is is it's, it, it can be a barrier if you love it too much. If it is something that you, well, like at all, if you love money at all, that is probably a barrier between you and God. And so you need to be able to get rid of all that money, lose everything, and still worship God the way that Job did, right? So God took away all of the blessings that God had allowed Job to accumulate, and Job still worshipped and praised God properly, despite all of that. The rich young ruler wouldn't have, in my opinion. We don't know that. That's not a scriptural fact or anything like that. But my opinion, and the way that I understand the two stories if God had taken away all of the rich young ruler's money and wealth, he probably would have cursed God at that point and, and sinned against him. Right? So, that's, yeah. that's the difference. Um, what, was the, what was the rest of the question there? Sorry. I know I get uh, off on my tangents. and then possession. Um, like, just stuff in general. Yeah, so again, uh, I think the Bible kind of treats money and possessions in a, in a very similar way, uh, especially if you look at like Abraham and Job, they didn't have a whole lot of like gold, but what they did have was like thousands of, of sheep and, you know, tens of thousands of camels or whatever, right? Um, so to them, money was possessions, having that was the, basically the same thing, and so you know, I, I think that you shouldn't love any possession more than you love God, or, or really, you shouldn't love any possession, like, at all. You should enjoy possessions, and you should enjoy the benefits and the gifts that God's given to you, but they shouldn't be something that you really love. You should love your family and your friends and God, and uh, obviously God being number one, but you shouldn't be in love with stuff. I think that's uh, uh, a something that a lot a lot of people in the modern era are capable for the first time of having that be a problem right so if you're a peasant on a farm in 1900 or 1800 or a thousand you don't have enough money to even remotely be you know uh, uh capable of worshiping the money the you know the things that you have you basically have nothing but today we have so much that we can start to uh, kind of worship it. Yeah, and so that kind of also helps, or helps, it, it'll be a good segue into, like, what is an idol? Yeah, like, so, uh, yeah. Uh, an idol is anything that you use, uh, anything that you worship, or I would, I would add, personally, that anything that you use to aid your worship, okay? So it's something that you're pointing to in your prayers or in your worship time that isn't God, okay? So we're supposed to directly worship and communicate and commune with 
God Almighty himself through our high priest, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so if you put anything in between that, uh, that relationship, and uh, if you put anything in between you and God there, that I believe to be an idol. Okay? So that can be anything from money could be an idol. That could be a barrier between you and God. Um, but a lot more common ones would be physical objects that you think you need in order to be uh, heard by God or be right with God or that you think are lucky or are going to bring you some kind of good fortune. Um, items that you think are protecting you or are keeping you safe somehow just by you holding on to them and physically having them. Um, so anything uh, that, that separates you from God or anything that you rely on rather than the completed work of Jesus Christ. So I don't need to be worried about a demon harassing me or possessing me ultimately because I've been saved by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so I don't need, um, so I don't need anything else to protect me. And so if I'm looking to something else for that protection, that would be an idol. Okay, because basically anything we need, we seek it from God alone, right? Through Jesus. Right? E exactly. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean that you just sit there and pray for a, a cheeseburger and God's going to magically manifest a cheeseburger. You still have to go to McDonald's and order it, but... Um, you know, if you're praying for your daily bread, it's, you know, most of the time God provides, especially here in the United States, God provides that daily bread. So, and then if he doesn't, there was a reason why, and he'll ultimately, uh, he's ultimately going to shepherd you into heaven and into eternity. So even if I die of starvation, because I didn't get that daily bread that I need, that's okay. God's going to have me. Uh, come back and, and or not come back, but I'm going to be able to live with him for eternity regardless. So he's going to take care of me in heaven ultimately. Yeah. All right. Um, let's do one more. Okay. That sounds good. Um, so if I'm a Christian, and I'm getting kind of, or I'm struggling with certain things, not like accepting them, but really just kind of like doubt in general. Like if I have doubt in any area of God's word, or let's say not even in God's word, let's say I'm, I'm saved, I confess Jesus and all this kind of other stuff, and I got baptized and, um, I'm just starting to have doubt, like, you know, I, I've sinned, I've, I've confessed that sin to God, and I'm trying to repent of this sin, and I'm good for, like, a year or two, let's, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example, I don't know, drugs, um, gambling, you know what I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to do something, you know, I agree with God that I shouldn't do it, um, I don't do it for a very long period of time, and then I do it again, and then I, you know, that sin, I repent of that sin, and again, I get another two, three years going, and I do, and I do it again. I gambled again, right? Um, and I have starting, and I have doubts. Like, am I even saved? Am I even repenting? 
like and just doubt in general what's going on to christians when they're having doubt and how do we how, how would you address that um so what's going on you know i i can't speak for anybody that's not me right i don't know what is specifically tormenting anybody about that um i can say that that for me um it's helpful to to realize that the the work that jesus christ did on the cross is complete and it's not something that even i can i'm not powerful enough to overcome the power of jesus christ on the cross okay so my worst sins the worst things that i could do are not powerful enough to overcome the work that he did now I should be living my life in such a way that I'm minimizing the sins that I commit and, and doing that as little as, as possible. But as a human being, you're going to miss the mark. You're going to sin. You're going to do something that, that God doesn't want you to do. And uh, you have to be willing to accept those consequences, but it's not something that you need to beat yourself up over. You know, the, the Bible says, uh, now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so... Because we're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for the sins that we commit. So we don't need to be concerned about that or worried about that. Okay. That what was the sense. what was the full question again? Sorry, I had something I was gonna hit on and uh, yeah. Just like if I'm if I read something that God is saying, like how how can I avoid having doubt with the things God is saying, like? either in his word or what I've already believed. Like, I don't know how to explain it. So I'm reading the word and I read something and I doubt what I'm seeing or I don't necessarily uh, um, immediately believe. Not even like, 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 you know, like I'm a Christian, I'm, sub I'm submitting myself to God, but I read something in the word and I don't believe it. Let's say it's like, I don't know, you're, you know, uh, coming from the big bang or something and you're reading genesis right um, so i'm just trying to think like how can i avoid having doubt or how can i be assured that what god is saying is true like um in that sense and then um the other part was like you know the whole i i'm struggling sin you know having doubt in my own uh, yeah salvation and stuff like that um so uh, n number one, um, if you're doubting the Bible, then I, then I would suggest you go test it, okay? Um, go look at it from a scientific perspective. Go look at the scientific claims that it makes. And what's crazy is, despite Moses being the only uh, source of real like knowledge that went into creating the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, like... Obviously, it was inspired by God, but it wasn't written by a whole group of Jews, right? It was written by just Moses. And so he had been trained by the best and brightest Egyptians, okay? And so what should have happened is his medical advice should have been go and rub alligator dung in it, okay? That was the, that was the best advice of the Egyptians. Every Egyptian woman had alligator dung in her medicine cabinet, okay? Right? right? Like everybody had was using this as actual medicine to cure things like rubbing it in open wounds type stuff okay just gross disgusting we now know that probably killed a whole bunch of people nonsense okay but what we see in the bible is none of it 
absolutely none of that insanity makes it into the Bible, okay? But what does make it into the Bible is, uh, let's make sure you poop outside the camp. <laughs> let's not be pooping inside the camp where God's walking around. Let's, let's go outside the camp, dig a hole, take care of it there. <laughs> and so from there we Sanitation get... Sanitation stuff is... Yes. Uh, the, the Jews are all about washing their hands, okay? We still can't get doctors to wash their hands properly in modern United States hospitals. But the Jews, what, uh, 4,000 years ago now, in their texts, talk about how you need to wash your hands to be clean and ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And um, what we see is that what was written in the, uh, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, it actually kept the Jewish people from getting as many diseases and plagues in Europe which then led to myths saying that they were the ones starting the diseases and the plagues, <laughs> right? Um, That's funny. Uh. But, but because of the accurate to the real world, scientifically like testable uh, practices that God instilled in the Jews, okay, they, we can see the real world effects of that on their people today, okay? And so... Uh, I would say go test it. Uh, you can e very easily go and test the prophecies that the Bible has. The Bible has a very clear prophecy of Tyre. Uh, you spell that T-Y-R-E. I would recommend uh, there's a Mike Winger video that explains the prophecy of Tyre and how it 100% perfectly matches up with what actually happened in history. Um, so that's something that we can go and look back on and see the truth of the Bible in. And so once you start seeing that every single one of these things lines up and is true, you can then go and believe, yes, God really did create Adam and Eve. I don't need, uh, you know, I don't need to see how that happened scientifically to believe it because all of these other scientific facts are 100% accurate and perfect, even more so than a, than a textbook would have been accurate 50 years ago. <laughs> Right, like you can, you can then take the scientific stuff that you're confirming, and then take a leap of faith on the stuff that is a little bit hard to do that with, and just have faith that what God is saying is true in that aspect, right? Exactly. And I just want to make it clear, and I know that you don't believe this, but no one is calling for you to have a blind faith, right? That's what the atheists always say: is "Oh, you have blind faith." Uh, what does that mean? No. Well, they, what they mean by it is that we just blindly believe that we're going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute and be okay. That's what they mean by blind faith. Like, we literally don't have any reason to believe it, but we're just going to believe it regardless. Where the no, reality... That was Abraham. That was Abraham. He had, in my opinion, how was he supposed to know? Like... How was he supposed God to know what? That, that A... The thing talking to me is actually God, and B, that he's going to follow through with his word. He's, I have this entity speaking to me, claiming to be God, saying to sacrifice my kid. So it's like, it's, it's, do you know what I mean? Like, well, uh, it's, yeah. Uh, if you, if you, so look, I think, yeah. yeah, I think <laughs> Abraham had to take the largest, uh, step of faith in that. And that's just me as a new believer. Right? <laughs> You know? Um, th there's actually a, a, a lot of reason to believe that when Abraham got commanded to go sacrifice his son Isaac, 
he believed that God was going to resurrect his son. <laughs> oh, why is why is that? Because he had uh, he had been uh, basically I, I don't remember all the the details but of it, but there's good reason to believe that he would have suspected that, uh, just because of all the other miracles and things that have been fulfilled in Abraham's life, like just having the kid in the first place was a huge is fulfilled really miracle. Uh, it, so it doesn't matter how old the man is; the, a man can be on his deathbed and still, you know, get a kid. Um, but it's his wife, Sarah, who was well past the age of childbearing, and uh, she was oh. able to miraculously have a child at the age of, like, 90 or 99. <laughs> um, so seeing those sorts of things happen in your life, the fabulous wealth that he had, the, the favor that he had from God, just seeing all of that, it makes it uh, a lot easier to believe that God can resurrect your son that he gave you miraculously in the first place right um so the now to answer your other question about um how can we you know since we sin so much how can we have confidence in our salvation you know my my question to you is have you sinned more than king david (laughs) have you sinned more than king solomon how many wives and concubines do you have how many idols did they bring into your house and are now causing you to worship okay how many uh how many horses have you multiplied? How much gold have you, uh, have you taxed from the people of Israel? Okay, these are all commandments that King David and King Solomon broke, multiplying wives, multiplying horses, multiplying silver, that they were specifically told in the Torah not to do. Okay? And so, okay. Y- you're not going to beat King David or King Solomon on a who sinned more contest. and. We what we know about King David he is he was a man after God's own heart, and, and so what that means is that we shouldn't be sinning. It's not good. I'm not saying that King David's sins are a good thing. I'm not trying to say that they are are laudable or downplay it. Obviously, him murdering Uriah and taking Uriah's wife uh, to bed and and having children with her that's a horribly evil, corrupt act. Um. And, you know, he ends up paying the consequences for that later on when uh, uh, Bathsheba's, well, so Bathsheba's uh, grandfather actually rebels against King David. What? Yeah. I didn't know about that. What? So so later on, you you see a rebellion led by a uh, family member of, I, I believe it's Bathsheba, and I believe it's her either father or her grandfather. Who leads they a rebellion? Uriah that much that they were like, um, "I'm mad that, that you are now the king's wife." That was his family. That he murdered someone in his family, right? That that is very serious. Even though you're the king, that doesn't make it right or okay. Did, um, were they uh, wise to that? That that David? Um, well, didn't he like send a letter and told his troops to fall back on Uriah? Yeah. So I don't know who knew what and when. Uh, I do know that Nathan knew about it. And so the prophet Nathan comes and admonishes him later on in in the book of Samuel, or uh, sorry, in the book of uh, Kings, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, like, like I said, you are not going to beat any of these men on a in a sinning contest. Okay. Like yeah, you're bad and horrible, and I'm horrible and bad and and everything. But like what they were doing is just on a whole other level. And they still were men of great faith and men that we are going to see in eternity. I mean, 
King David was so loved by God that that his own son came from King David's line. Jesus Christ is in the line of David is a huge blessing and a huge, uh, um, you know, it's it's a huge not mild. It's a huge uh, sign that that God loves King David that much, and he really was a man after God's own heart. Whatever that actually means, you know, it's something that I wish I understood more so I could be that. Right? That's that's what I want to be called. <laughs> Yeah, I just, um, I asked my friend, like, how, what would you say to qualify as a man after God's own heart, and he just said, in submission to God, you know what I mean, in, in all of your dealings, like, like, how you treat people, uh, how you carry yourself on a day, on a day to day, like, when you deal with money, when people trust you with things, like, you're just always being righteous whenever, like, you really can. Of, you know, like, sin's gonna creep up on you, you're gonna get in the flesh, you're gonna have problems, but, like, for the most part, if your heart's intentions 99% of the time are always to follow God faithfully, I think that is a man after God's own heart. You can't be perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, so you, you, no one's gonna be perfect. Um, I, I think what we see King David and, and the reason why he's called a man after God's own heart is when he's confronted with his sin, he repents, and he does it immediately, and he does it properly, right? So when King Nathan comes and uh, admonishes him for... King Nathan? Sorry, Prophet Nathan. The pro when the <laughs> prophet... Thank you for catching me on that. So when the Prophet Nathan comes and admonishes King David for his sin with Uriah, he doesn't lop off Nathan's head, Okay. That's what most kings of the time would do. If you're getting confronted they by their prophets, yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. So so instead of doing that, which a lot of kings would you know, were tempted by and, and did, instead of doing that, he he uh I don't know if he tears his clothes, but he basically tears his clothes in, in agony and goes, Oh my god, I can't I can't believe that I did this horrible thing. That person that you described in that story is me. And I, I was so much worse than the person in that story, and I thought that the person in the story needed to be killed, right? <laughs> and so he immediately understands the the How magnitude of, of what he's done, yeah. yeah. And so King David's repentance, I think, is is ultimately what we should be modeling the most from King David. You know, just how did he react when he needed to repent of his sin, when he's being called out by those responsible to call him out right because like who's who's responsible to call out the king uh, a prophet right <laughs> and so right. when when he's being called out by the prophet he responds the correct and proper way so that pro that's probably a pretty good place to end it you know just yeah. uh i think that's something that we all need to work on i i know i need to work on it just properly repenting of the the sins that i commit and working towards not doing them anymore right Ooh, let's end on what is what um what does repentance mean? Where do we get that word? Uh, what is repentance? Um, I don't, idea? I don't know exactly where it comes from, the etymology of it, but uh, repenting of something means basically just to turn away from it, to uh, acknowledge that it's something that you've done, and to uh work t and to uh admit to God that it's a sin, and turn away uh from that sin and turn your back to it. I believe the Hebrew word has the connotation of uh, turning your back to something, but I, I could be wrong about that. Like facing the, like a 180, like facing the yeah. other direction. Yeah. yeah. So, 
All right. Any uh, anything else you want to add there, Austin? Are we? Uh, oh just no! About uh, done? Uh, okay. Actually, um, if you, if our listeners or viewers or anybody watching this has any questions that they'd like brought up on the show, go ahead and leave those in the comments below, and we'll definitely um, use scripture to uh, work through any of the questions that you have. And yeah, uh, send us your big brain questions on what you'd like us to cover in the next uh, coming up episodes. Awesome. Yes, I completely agree. Please send us your questions. Um, and uh, you can find me. My name's Ryan over at As It Is Written uh, basically everywhere. And you can find Austin over at ApostlesAddict.com. And uh, we are very happy that you listened to us if you listened all this way. And uh, we hope to see you again next week. We're going to try to do this every Saturday. Uh, unlikely this late again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is so. really late, but um we are doing a band aid recording from earlier, so <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll be fine. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a great week. Goodbye. <laughs>